0: I'm Larry Woodard, and welcome to Admire, where I have conversations with leaders in business, entertainment, sports, and education. My guest today has had a big life in advertising, having worked at Marquee Agencies, including Donor TBWHI at Day Hill, Holiday, and BBDO. She went on to become president and chief executive officer of the American Association of Advertising Agencies, the Four A's, which she led before leaving to start Media Sherpas, a consultancy for the advertising community. Nancy Hill, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. How are you, Larry? I'm good. I've never told you this before, but you have a great children's book name. I'm always making up titles in my head. Adventurer, Nancy Hill, <laughs> Nancy Hill Lion Tamer, How Nancy Hill Saved Cleveland.
1: Uh, it's very funny. One of those books that I had when I was a kid was called Fancy Nancy.
0: <laughs> there you go. Just <laughs> uh, although we've both spent most of our adult lives working in the same industry, I met you in your capacity as president and CEO of the four A's. For the benefit of our listeners, the 4 A's is the trade association associated uh, for the advertising agencies. It's founded in 1917, serves over 700 member agencies across about 1,300 offices, which control more than 85% of the total U.S. advertising spend. When I met you, I had been affiliated with the organization for over 25 years. I had used its library and research facilities. I had attended the national convention, but I never felt I belonged until you got there. You put a focus on diversity, inclusion, and gender equality, and you did it pragmatically and effectively. Why is diversity and gender inclusion so hard for ad agencies?
1: Well, first of all, I remember that meeting very well. I believe Val was with you, Val Gray. Yes, absolutely. Yep, yeah, I, re- I remember that meeting, and I remember having a very open and honest discussion about all of the reasons why it's been so hard for ad agencies. Uh, there, there are so many ways in to uh, looking at why that problem continues um, now. Uh, you know, there are plenty, as you know, uh, of entry-level programs out there, including one that the 4 has done mm-hmm. for going on 50 years now called MAPE, Multicultural Advertising Internship Program. Yeah. So we've never, I think, had a problem getting people in, in entry-level. What we've had a problem with is growing those people once they get into the agencies and giving them career paths that um, they can quite frankly see a way to the top. Um, and we lose them uh, to other industries uh, because they look up and they say, I don't see anybody who looks like me. I don't belong here as you said, um, or it's just too hard. And it, I think that, we've done ourselves a huge disservice by continuing to bring in this pipeline without giving them all of the tools and um, environment in which they can honestly survive and thrive. Uh, and I, and I think that's part of the reason why we continue to lose people to this
0: day. You know, I, I agree with you and, and I want to sort of mix this uh, conversation that we're having uh, both with, um, you know, your, uh, observations from a leadership position, but also your personal, you know, moving from the, the macro to the micro. Why do you think you were able to have such a career in the industry that that career that so many other women desired but couldn't achieve?
1: <laughs> I'm hard headed. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, the one thing I always tell people about my career, and and it was my choice, my career to do the things that I did, is that I generally would raise my hand to work on things that nobody else really wanted to work on. Mm -hmm. Um, So these were not the cushy assignments. Um, The the one most notable one I I will um, recount is uh, I was probably five or six years into the business. I was a mid-level account person. We had just won a piece of business that was only $4.5 million total budget Um, it was only going to be running any advertising in Baltimore, Philly, and Washington. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was all radio and outdoor. So there was no television and no glamor with it. And they were trying to figure out who was going to run the business. And I was, I, in my head was ready for a promotion. So I raised my hand. That little piece of business was Bell Atlantic mobile, Mm -hmm. which is now, which is now Verizon wireless. Right. Um, and I grew along with that business, and I ended up working on that business more than once uh, in my career in different agencies in different capacities. But I got a taste of technology very early on, um, and it honestly set up my career. Because at that moment in time, a woman who had tech experience uh, rising through the ranks of account management, I got recruited pretty heavily. Um, it's what ended up leading me to TBWA shy a day. It's what ended up leading me to run an agency in San Francisco whose largest client was Cisco Systems. Um, it's what led me to getting recruited to BBDO to help them set up their tech practice and so on and so forth. Um, and that was, again, my choice to raise my hand to work on something that nobody else wanted. But it did set up my career uh, for the rest of it.
0: And I like the way that you you talk about it from an opportunity perspective because the thing that I heard first and loudest was when you talked about being hard headed. You know, I've spent the last eight or nine years working with NASCAR, and I think that one of the secrets to being able to work in those types of environments is you know you take a lot of confidence into those environments, knowing that you can add value. And so, you know, you ignore some stuff. You let some stuff roll off your back because the fact of the matter is, is that you know that you belong and you know that you can actually, you know, um, contribute. You've worked at some high powered testosterone shops uh, and BBDO in particular, an agency I'm familiar with. I heard that um, uh, in the company cafeteria, they have a testosterone machine. I've never seen it, but but that's what I've heard. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was at BDO once, and I was told that earlier that day, the chief creative officer and the head of account services had a fist fight before a client meeting. And I saw one of them, and he did look like he had been in a tussle. Uh, how do you facilitate change in that type of environment?
1: So I never saw anything like that. <laughs> um, I, I would say that I, what I um, experienced was much more on a level of microaggression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give you an example. I was part of the, the management team. I was actually on the, the board of the New York office. And I, I remember very distinctly one day getting in a discussion with one of my peers, a male. And he said, well, didn't you, under, didn't you hear that it has been decided that we're going to do X? I don't even remember what it was. Mm-hmm. And I said, no. When did that meeting happen? And he stood there and he looked at me for a minute. he goes, oh, my God, I just realized that we were all in the men's room and we just had a quick discussion. And wow. that's how, when it got decided. So it was, it, you know, that, that I don't look at as intentional omission, um, but it's, you know, I'm not going to be in the men's room to have those discussions. Right. So I think back then, especially teaching people to, hey, stop, we need to get Nancy involved in this discussion um, was just not part of the, the vernacular. And it was certainly not something that people thought of. I do think that with some of the training that uh, most of the agencies are putting their uh, leadership teams through, you're more likely to have somebody say, stop, we need to get Nancy involved uh, these days than you were back then. Uh, But I, I, listen, BBDO was legendary for um, being a boys club. Uh, Part of the reason that Andrew Robertson recruited me was to help break that up. Um, But it was deeply ingrained in the culture and tough to break up. Uh, but,, uh, as I said earlier, I'm hard-headed, and I just didn't let it get to me. But I also did not let um, the women who reported to me get caught up in all of that either. Mm-hmm. And if I witnessed any behavior that I thought was, um, I'll use an old-fashioned term untoward, um, I would uh, immediately call it out. and I, I think that's the the other thing that, over time, I developed a muscle in being able to call things out and hopefully do it in a way that nobody had to feel shamed or embarrassed. I,
0: I think that, that, that's, um, that that's a perfect explanation of, um, of, of why you've had so much uh, success. You know, uh, while you were leading the 4As, I was privileged to serve as chairman of the New York Council. And we did a lot of good work, you know, greatly increasing the number of scholarships awarded, strengthening the education offerings and launching the country's first advertising high school what accomplishments are you most proud of at the four A's and what do you think your advertising legacy will be?
1: I would say, you know, when you, when you opened this, um, segment, up, when you talked about my commitment to diversity and inclusion and gender equity, uh, I would say, um, dragging the organization into those conversations right from the minute I walked through the door. Uh, and if you remember at that moment in time, Uh, There was a a group in New York city uh, called the human rights commission um, that had been brought together to, to really go after the ad agencies. There was the threat of a class action lawsuit. um, And it was, it was a a conversation that my predecessor, for whatever reason, I'm not going to point any fingers, Mm -hmm. was really shy about wanting to get involved in. Uh, And I, I think like a lot of white men, um, was fearful of having those conversations and I decided the day I got there that I was not going to be afraid to have those conversations and that I was going to wade right into the pool um, and take it and so I did and I think that I think that did help the the organization get itself set up for being the, um, the center of those conversations and leading those conversations for at least the tenure that I was there.
0: Yeah, I'm always fascinated by um, leadership. When someone, uh, you know, when when you get the reins, when you have an economic downturn, you've got all these headwinds. You have, uh, you know, the threat of a lawsuit. You've got all that stuff, and then you, you know, you lead and and you get things done. Uh, so now, for better than three years, you've been running a consultancy, Media Sherpas. How's that been mm-hmm. going? And what has the transition to entrepreneur, business owner been like?
1: Well, the first, so I took six months off before I started the, the company mm-hmm. uh, and it was really to give me the opportunity for the first time since eighth grade uh, mm-hmm. to not work and to just rewire my head. And I, when I set up the consultancy, I wasn't exactly sure what it was going to look like. Uh, so I kept the, the name of the company broad enough under the heading of media mm-hmm. um, that I could work in anywhere in the ecosystem, and really for the first year, that's what happened. I, I spent a good part of the first year doing some work for clients, doing some work for agencies, uh, doing some work for um, some uh, micro networks. And what I've really settled into after, and I, and last year I even did uh, a pretty um, large review for uh, a, a company looking for a media agency. Mm-hmm. But really, where I've settled is is where I'm happy and where I'm happy is working with agencies, largely independent agencies, um, and helping them to navigate all of the changes that we're going through, uh, especially in this moment in time. Um, but also helping them to grow their business, to think about their business differently, to apply all of the things I learned about diversity and inclusion to their businesses uh, and, and really help them to be successful. And I, and I love doing that. So it, it's, kind of the culmination of all of the things I experienced in my career topped off by having a perspective that's somewhat unique having run the forays that I can um, give guidance and advice and it's really been a, a joy for me.
0: And, and I think that's a perfect role for you. Uh, you know, switching gears, the world's in a battle royale against the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, there have been recent news stories about the impact of the virus on your beloved Ecuador, where I know you have a residence and spend some time volunteering. How are things there?
1: Not good. Um, I, I'll Full disclosure, we sold the house last year, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we got out because we, um, my, my dear friend Bonnie Lunt and I and uh, the other people that were involved in the volunteer organization didn't feel safe there anymore, not because of any geopolitical environment, but because we had found out that our driver that worked for us in the school system down there uh, was actually a pedophile. Mm-hmm. And Bonnie had worked very hard to get him convicted and put in jail, unfortunately. And he is in jail, thankfully. Right. Um, but his family, who's fairly powerful, um, basically has made it feel like we're not safe there. So we're not involved down there at the moment in time. We still have um, many friends. And the situation with um, the COVID virus is not good. The healthcare system, unless you're in one of the major cities, is terrible. Right. Um, and they can't get their hands on the vaccines uh, that, we, that you wouldn't have for a normal virus, let alone any way of treating. They don't have the ventilators, as you would imagine. Right. Um, so I, um, I'm in touch with a couple of people down there, and they're just doing the best they can to isolate themselves.
0: Yeah, it, it's really something. I think one thing that uh, that that so many Americans don't realize is that uh, when you go to countries, even some countries that um, that in some ways you know are first world, they've got hotels, they've got those kinds of things. Uh, there's a sort of a steep dr- drop when you go to some of the more provincial areas. You know, I I, I lived in southern Italy as a, as a kid, and you know, below Naples, the so-called Mezzogiorno district where we lived, uh, you know, in Martina Franca in Puglia. Um, you know, there was cholera in the water. It was just, um, you know, th- there were places, villages that just had a central water system, and this was in the 70s. You know, so um, so I really feel for countries that aren't able to, to, to mount the proper attack because of infrastructure during this time.
1: Yeah, I remember so distinctly being in a meeting. My Spanish is fairly good. I wouldn't say that I'm 100% fluent, and, and I, depending on if I'm living there or living here, it right, goes in right. and out. But I remember being in a meeting with a group of women uh one night and this woman was trying an indigenous woman was trying to tell me that she needed help with some medical treatment and could I get a doctor to see her and she kept describing what was going on with her and I and I'm trying to translate each word and then interpret that into some kind of malady mm-hmm. what she was telling me was that she had worms in her brain
0: wow that's yep.
1: trichinosis yeah yeah, that we don't have that in the United States. Yeah, and, it, and you know it—it it comes from a tainted food product, and it comes from—and so again, some of the things that we saw in all the time that we were volunteering down there and building schools, you know, we had volunteers who got scabies. Yeah, same. It, and know, so it, now you add a virus on top of that kind of an environment,
0: right? I can't imagine. Absolutely. Same. When, you know, when I was a kid, you know, a a family friend got trichinosis and it was really, really sad because it took the American doctors a long time to figure out what it was. And by the time they did, you know, he had lost memory. There were there were some issues. Um, uh, I've read and heard news reports about the toll this pandemic has taken on the advertising industry. Uh, our industry is already undergoing a major digital transformation, already going, undergoing major shifts of, of where buckets of money are going to, you know, to the Googles and the Amazons of the world or in-house. Uh, what do you see happening as a result of this massive revenue loss? And uh, will agencies bounce back or will we become part of history like the Iceman, the Fuller Brush and Encyclopedia salespeople?
1: So I won't sugarcoat this. This is not going to be a good year. Uh, 2020 is not going to be a good year. Uh, And most of the agencies that I'm talking to, some of whom are clients and some are just people that I'm I'm having regular phone calls with have really battened down the hatches to try and survive um, from a cash standpoint. Right. Uh, Because not only are their revenues down, but everybody's slowing down payments. And they were already in a situation where clients had extended payments way beyond what's reasonable. And now clients are slowing that down even further So cash is very much uh, on the top of everybody's list in terms of how they manage themselves through this. Mm -hmm. Um, Quite a few of the agencies are applying for the small business loans um, and have some of them have even said to me, I would never have imagined that I would have needed to do this. But we don't know what those restrictions on those loans um, could prove to be unwieldy in terms of how long you have to keep employees on. And then if you have a burn rate that's beyond what you're um, able to get in revenue, it becomes untenable over time.
0: Uh-huh.
1: That said, I remember Rasad uh, Tabakawala once said it at one of the 4A meetings when he was describing agency people, he actually said, we're like cockroaches, you can't kill us. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that what he was trying to say is that over time, agencies have evolved and they've adapted. And they're a resilient bunch agency people. So I do I'm getting a little chugged up talking about this, but I do believe that we will come out of this. And I do believe that we will likely come out of this in a better, stronger place than how we went in. Um, But I don't I can't predict what that's exactly going to look like. You mentioned in uh, setting up this question, the the, um, movement to digital. I do believe that this um, quarantine and all of the things that we've had to go through has ex- completely accelerated the, the digital adoption, both from an agency standpoint and from a consumer standpoint. I was talking to somebody in China a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about the fact that as they're coming out of their um, quarantine and getting back to the beginnings of a new normal, she said digital and delivery have become the default setting for everything uh, in terms of retail, in terms of restaurants, in terms of even cars getting delivered to your door. So I think if we start thinking, we as an industry start thinking about what impact that has on our clients' businesses and can prove the value of our insights, um, I think never before have we been more valuable to our clients.
0: Uh, I think that that, that's very well put. You know, uh, my agency is called Graham Stanley Advertising. It was named after my dad. And um, he had a very interesting career in that he started in electronics when it was tubes. And he went from tubes to transistors to solid state to computers. And all along the way, every time there was a change, um, they lost a whole generation of employees, people who just couldn't do the learning, couldn't get to the next step. And I remember 15, 16 years ago, you know, fighting with um, Maurice Levy at, um, at publicist because I wanted to start, you know, Vigi Digi, you know, our digital unit. And um, he was saying, no, we're going to have digital units. And I was trying to tell him, no, we're all going to become digital units. And he was saying, yeah. no, we're buying digital units. And so, you know, I, I left when I left and uh, our, our company got to the future really quickly and now, you know, um, in addition to just having relationships where we, we fee based relationships, we also have equity and ownership position where we can use not only our advertising and marketing skills, but also the business skills, you know, that you learn working for various clients over the years. And so I just uh, I agree with you. I think that the agencies that don't survive will be those that don't survive and those that do will be stronger and, and potentially more important to clients
1: also think they're going to look very different. I have been a big, big, big proponent of what I call a studio model in terms of staffing for many, many years. Um, and uh, if you will, I, um, I I read an article many years ago about Ron Howard and Brian Grazer and their partnership and how they structured their company. And they have very few full time employees because the thinking is, and this is where the studio model. Um, organization comes in, um, the thinking is that every project that you take on is going to be different. So you want to be able to staff up with the people who are right for that project. And I believe that agencies need to move into a direction that looks much more like that and allows us to bring in the right partners and people um, on any given project that we need, because I don't think the way that we operate now Um, I don't think you can possibly house all of the expertise that you might possibly need, given that the outcome might be a big uh, event or um, an AI or uh, something else. Who knows what this content is going to take shape of? Uh, And so I I think that as we start to rebuild what the future of the agency is going to look like, I think we have to look at How we figure out the partners that we need to have on our rosters to call in at any given point in time and the people that we can tap into when we need to, which, by the way, to bring back this conversation to the full circle, Mm -hmm. I think lends itself to diversity, inclusion and gender equity in a way that we've never experienced before. Uh,
0: On a personal note, uh, as, as we wrap up, how are you weathering the storm? And do you have any specific advice for Americans, as many of us are homebound, uncertain, and, and even afraid?
1: Uh, you know, I'm my husband and I are weathering the storm, I'd say, fairly well. My husband is a uh, throat cancer survivor, so I'm pretty vigilant about uh, doing everything that you need to do to stay safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I got up and went to the grocery store this morning very early. I lovely that I qualify for the over-60 <laughs> timing. Um, and <laughs> Um, and I, and I'm trying to minimize the amount of trips that I have to make to the grocery store and all of those other things. I did have one client say to me the other night, um, I think you need to get some rest. You trying to be the rock for everyone during this is a hard job. And, and that's a, that's a tendency that I have is, is especially, um, with the client base that I have. I want to be in service to my clients. Um, and sometimes that drives me to not, make sure that I'm getting enough rest or exercise or all those other things. So I'm trying to be more mindful of that um, and make sure that we all get through this. But I I do believe in my heart of hearts that we, not only as the advertising industry, a resilient bunch, I think that the U S is a resilient country. Mm -hmm. Um, We've come through some pretty phenomenal times in our past. And I think we'll get through this. I don't know what it's going to look like on the other side, I do think we can um, look to other countries as they're starting to emerge um, and make sure that we take both good cues and bad cues from uh, what they experience. But I do believe we'll get through this and and it it won't look like it used to look, but it's going to be okay.
0: This is admire. And my guest has been Nancy Hill. Nancy, thank you.
1: You're welcome, Larry. Nice talking with
0: you. You too. Be well.